Hello and welcome to the Eco Chamber, brought to you by the team from the environmental policy magazine, The Ends Report. In this episode, we're going to examine Jacob Rees-Mogg and George Eustace's tiff over Rees-Mogg's plan to axe all remaining EU laws in under four years. We'll look at why the government's flagship environmental land management scheme is coming unstuck and how the lovely Osprey could be making a comeback in the south of England. Then, Jamie's going to unveil his latest quiz as part of his campaign to systematically embarrass the rest of us. And once we've recovered, we'll take a deep dive into why homes on the UK's east coast are literally falling into the sea. And finally, Gareth and Simon will be along, our chemical brothers, to talk about how chemicals can trigger rare allergies. So, without further ado, let's enter the eco-chamber. I'm Rachel Salvage, Deputy Editor of The Ends Report, and as usual, I'm here with our editor Jamie Carpenter and Tess Colley. Uh, first up, we're going to look at the big green news of the fortnight. Our first story is on Jacob Rees-Mogg's plan to axe all residual EU rules, which include key green re- regulations, by the 23rd of June 2026. Rees-Mogg, who's now the Brexit Opportunities Minister, but seems to be taking on a bit more of a Grim Reaper role, has been explicit about his dislike of the precautionary principle and is dead keen to slash the civil service by up to 40%, according to one report or another report, says he wants to cut civil service numbers by 91,000 over the next three years. But it seems that his exuberant attitude to deregulation has led to a bit of a cabinet scuffle. Jamie, what's all this about? Yeah, well, um, Jacob Rees-Mogg has become a very, strangely, a very important figure for the environmental world. So, so as you say, that there's the his, his role as um, government efficiencies. So so he's in charge of these plans to, to reduce the civil service by tens of thousands of individuals um and and then also this, this this kind of brexit opportunities um brief um he's where where he's he's working up the um this new new bill that's um going to be introduced soon that's going to um hopefully help us to the the sunlit finally help us to the sunlit uplands of brexit so and as part of that bill he's looking at the idea of the kind of retained law eu law um he he wants to kind of have a a, a cliff edge deadline of 20 23rd of june 2026 which is which is uh 10 years after the EU referendum and the idea would be that thousands of retained eu laws would fall off the uk statute book how many is that do you know how many roughly so there's a letter from Rhys mogg and that that said that there were 2194 retained eu laws that were still in existence across 180 mm. policy areas so um so yeah so that that's what he has in his sights how many of those rules would be defra based rules so um, DEFRA is among the departments that has the most rules. It's got 330 retained EU laws. The Department of Transport has um, the most at 430, but, but DEFRA is kind of right up there. And, and that's, that's one of the reasons why, in, in the context of the civil service cuts, DEFRA actually, it's kind of civil service grew a whole load after, after Brexit to kind of deal with this, this um, huge workload. But George Eustace is, is not... Um, not happy about this. So, so the, the the story this week is that he's he's written to Rhys Mogg to to push back against this um, this drive, and and I think um, he kind of basically thinks that the the idea of um, trawling through all these laws will will mean that his department officials department's officials time will be will be kind of wasted in on minor issues when when actually what he wants them to do really is to. Um, spend their time ripping up the Habitats Directive, and that's, that's kind of my, my words, not, not his. But, um, but 
Yeah, so as well as the habitats directors, are there any other key green laws that are in, in smog sites? Um, well, I, th I think the, the report mentioned um, kind of nitrates as well, which we, we, we know is a, is a kind of really big issue that's holding up a lot of um, lots of developments around around the country. So, so, so I suppose that, that kind of follows that the, the, these are the things that have the greatest impact, so habitats regulations and, you know, there's, there's plans to reform that nitrates directive. That, that, that they're the things that have been cited in, in the letter, but, but there's also a whole load of... EU law that that is kind of being reformed by DEFRA that presumably the 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 team there needs to spend a lot of time looking at so um so we've got the the changes to EIA and SCA that are kind of going sort of starting to go through the system as well and a load of other stuff too so 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 it's kind of interesting that this is happening in in the kind of coming from the same place as this drive to reduce civil service headcount because you quite difficult to square that circle yeah and it's not a, it's not only the cabinet that's having a bit of a, a scrap it's it's sort of led into the back benches hasn't it Tess is there uh, anything you tell us about that yeah so there was a new new report out this week by the the free market forum which is um it's a, an initiative of the institute of economic affairs which is itself chaired by Tory MPs Dehenna Davison and, and Greg Smith and in that report the authors are urging the government to I'm quoting now, to push ahead in rebalancing the proportionary principle and to cut red tape that is slowing innovation and gumming up the introduction of new pesticides. And you can imagine that's gone down well with uh, the green NGOs. How do you rebalance the precautionary principle? What does that mean? Well, it's a euphemism, isn't it? It's, yes, it's gone, it's gone too far. It's just <laughs> gone too far. You know, but it's slowing up, yeah, bringing in new pesticides or I think... There's you know a lot of talk at the moment about the you know the, the gene editing bill and innovation on in that that sphere, but of course uh, you know a lot of that is con it, some people you know think that's really worrying and it, there could be knock on consequences for the environment and for people's health. So all these things, the precautionary principle rears its head in a lot of them. So yeah, and it's it's a kind of a continuation of a debate that's been hotting up a bit in recent weeks. Jacob Rees-Mogg you know had said previously he was keen to ditch the precautionary principle and. Uh, DEFRA's recently emerged environment principles policy statement also you know, Green Group said you know that would be substantially weaker than the legal principles that had underpinned environmental protections before Brexit so yeah these discussions we we seem to keep having them. And is um, most of this going to be unpacked in the Brexit Freedoms Bill? Uh, well I think the answers to a lot of the speculation at the moment will be in that in that bill. I think Jacob Rees-Mogg has said he want he he's hopeful that it will be out before summer soon before the summer recess but uh there's you know there's all the usual caveats that it's very busy and important and there's lots to be done so it might not happen well that's something we can all print out and take off on our summer holidays with us isn't it and report yeah, back in, in uh, september we'll come back to this one our next story is about the government's flagship environmental land management scheme Known as ELMS, it was supposed to replace the elements of the uh, EU common agricultural policy by financially rewarding farmers and landowners for improving land for nature and other environmental benefits, rather than subsidising them based on the amount of land that they own or manage. However, over time, this seems to be being chipped away at. First of all, there seemed to be a shift away from outcomes, and now a fresh row has broken out because it looks as though there has been further watering down. Tess, can you update us on this one? Yeah, well, it's always all a bit complicated with with Elms this week. Um, there's been a, quite a lot of confusion. So the Sunday Times ran a, a splash at the weekend saying that the funding for the landscape recovery scheme, which is kind of the, the more ambitious tier of the Elms, saying that that funding was going to be slashed 
and this is based on the, the fact that Defra have said you know they're gonna just use fifty million pounds of the of the farming budget for the pilots in the next three years. Defra have you know always said that uh, their intention was for El- the funding for Elms to be split three ways between the three different tiers, and they haven't said that's no longer the case. So. It's not, you know, you can't say for sure that, you know, the landscape recovery scheme is going to no longer have a quarter of the budget. However, what we can say is that in all the recent communications we've seen from DEFRA, what they're trying to communicate is now that the allocation of funds will be flexible and they don't want to pin themselves down to any particular allocation. You know, say this is what we always wanted to do to de- to respond to demand and how things went. But this has piqued some concern from, well, observers because... Uh, this is the one of the you know the bigger the bigger things that's meant to make the difference for nature recovery. It's also coming a week ahead of a big by election, big for the Tories in um in Devon. Mm. Tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, so this this seat became free when Neil Parish um, watched all that porn in Parliament and <laughs> had to go. So that's why that's uh, being contested at the moment and. S- sexy tractors, wasn't it? Sexy tractors. Oh, yeah, sexy tractors. <laughs> uh, when I, it's come back to bite uh, because the tractors are causing the, the Conservatives a bit of trouble because uh, apparently the Liberal Democrats have told me that on the doorsteps of Tiverton and Honiton, the, the issue of the reduction of the base, basic payment scheme, which is what Elms is meant to be replacing, the gradual reduction of that is, is you know, it's um, causing a lot of concern amongst farmers because they say it's the elms isn't being rolled out at the same level at the same time and they're going to basically be worse off lib dems say that this is a big issue down there and they're campaigning hard on it and then some you know i've been you know people in the kind of green ngos some of the rspb told me that they're really worried that elms could become a scapegoat if the tories feel like they need to they need to get some support back they can't really you know party gates done a lot of damage this might be something they can actually seem to do something about so they're worried that 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 elms could fall foul of that so that's the background to all this confusion uh, around what's going on with the funding so is it possible to say i mean it's all very complicated and possibly not but is it pos- possible to say what these minor adjustments that to the policy that seem to be being made it's all a bit unclear what what that impact would be for the environment jamie you know or, or for, for the payments themselves yeah, well, I, well, I, I guess the concern was that the the landscape recovery element is is supposed to be the most ambitious part of the Elms program. So, so we're we're talking here, I suppose, around kind of creating wilder landscapes. So things, sort of new habitats, things like rewetted peats and afforestation at a, at a landscape scale. And 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 I, and I guess if, as you say, it's kind of really hard to. I've, I've not really managed to get my head around what what actually is going on here. It's quite complicated the, the the change but talking about um 50 million of the 2.4 billion annual farming budget going to this large-scale reform is is a lot less money than than a third of that um and i think i think campaigners also have a, a concern that it, even even if it's kind of if you if you kind of want to reach a third sort of after 2025 then you, you then you need to scale up that that level of investment exponentially which may which may not be feasible so um, so no, I think I think everyone, certainly conservationists, sort of see this kind of landscape scale stuff as as really really significant and important and something we absolutely need to do. Um, and what what this sounds like is this now puts a big question mark against that. 
So is this uh, another one of these policies that will get kicked into the long grass, but definitely not the wildflower meadow? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, if it would be if 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 it did, it's such a kind of pillar of you know, it's meant to hold up the the, the twenty thirty species halting the decline of species target. It's meant to underpin so much of you know of what the government want to do for the environment. It's hard to see how they can kick it into the long grass and still claim that they're going to hit all those targets. But um, stranger things have happened, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, it's a bit like whether this is like kind of Boris Johnson's cut the green crap moment, like David Cameron, sort of these reports that there's been there's been a change in Boris Johnson's team at number 10. So you've got, you've got people like Steve Barkley, his chief of staff, and um, David Canzini, who who are kind of, they're, they're kind of said to see environment as a, as a kind of second order priority and and we know there's a lot of pressure coming from the kind of agricultural lobby that, that they, they don't they're not kind of mad about these these new schemes so so um it, it might be that there, there are kind of things going on as well at the moment the, the the ukraine war kind of putting a big focus on food security that that actually and we've also had cop 26 now which was a big driver of their, their the government's green agenda last year does that does that mean actually that Last year was about as good as it got, and now 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 we're we're kind of back to green crap again. Mm. Oh, on that thought, on that on that bombshell, let's move on to some good news. Our third story. This is a bit more pleasant. I think I was going to say pheasant. Anyway, this is a bit more. This is more pleasant. It's all about uh, ospreys. So osprey chicks, two osprey chicks have hatched in the south of Britain for the first time in almost 200 years as part of a reintroduction programme which began about five years ago. And this is a fabulous news. Can we hear a little bit more about it, Tess? As you say, last week it was announced that two little osprey chicks have hatched in Pool Harbour after the back of a reintroduction programme that started about five years ago. And it's great news because, as you say, they haven't bred in the south of Britain for about 200 years. There have been ospreys in Scotland and um, kind of a few in, in the north of England, in Cumbria. But yeah, they, they, they're quite difficult to translocate, apparently. And so it's really, it's really fantastic that it's working out and they've got two chicks. There's a live cam, if anyone's interested who's listening to this, there's a live cam of the ospreys that you can watch. I have been watching it. Uh, for when I'm stressed <laughs> it's great to have some good news on birds of prey um, because it there's, is, there's, there's, it? Not, there's often you know we, we report quite distressing stories about what happens to to some of our, our big raptors mm. are you talking about white-tailed eagles there I'm talking about white-tailed <laughs> eagles what's the what's the status with these so the same it's the Roy Dennis Wildlife Foundation who have been managing this along with the birds of Pool Harbour group this reintroduction of the ospreys Royal, the Roy Dennis group have also have been looking after the Isle of Wight reintroduction programme of white-tailed eagles. But in recent months, anyone who you know follows our coverage will have seen that about three white-tailed eagles from that programme have been found dead across parts of uh, southern, southern England. And certainly at least two of them seem to die in mysterious circumstances. The investigation has been cut short, um, which is a topic of you know, some controversy itself. And then the problem is that often birds of prey are seen as uh, a threat to some industries like the game shooting industry or farming and they can be persecuted for that. Yeah, has, has Dorset Police, because uh, these are the people who are investigating, aren't they, they found high levels of rat poison in a couple of the birds or one of, one of them. Is that still in the mix? Is the potential um, 
how it, how it was killed or have they come to a different conclusion or what's happened? The investigation is closed and they've said that they, they can't, um, I believe they said they, you know, that's, it, it, it was killed by uh, the rat poison, but it's hard. They, they couldn't say if it was for definitely on purpose or if it was, you know, um, not on purpose and that's that. But yeah, I mean, there's lots been written about this, like why was in, why was the investigation cut short? Um, there seems to be some changes in Dorset uh, Police's wildlife crime team, and there was, of course, the the instance where the uh, MP for I think was it West Dorset, Chris Loder, he um he made some comments on social media about you know not thinking police should be foc- spending resources focusing on this sort of thing, and then the investigation did cl- did close a few weeks later. Yeah, so there's 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 a lot of eyes on that one at the moment. Didn't Chris Loder have some kind of interest, Jamie, in in this area? Yeah, so so there there was a big controversy at the time because because there were some reports that that Chris Loder received some election campaign funds from from a shooting estate, and in response to those reports, Loder did said that he did not feel he was influenced by this money, and he he put his dislike of eagles in his constituency down to fear about his fears around their impact on on farming. So his his line is that he's a farmer's son and. Uh, this is kind of in the best interests of the farming community and it's, it's nothing to do with this money. OK, well, that's, uh, that's our happy bonfire extinguished. Uh, let's, yeah. let's move on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, go and have a look at the webcam and, yeah, yeah, make yourself happy again. So now it's time for Jamie's quiz. Um, I have absolutely no idea what it's about this week, so please, Jamie, let us know. <laughs> what are we in for? OK, well, I've got something that, for you this week that's completely, completely utterly pointless. Yeah. So I thought we could oh, do um, some... As opposed um, to all the others. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Even sort of set a, low, a really low bar with the previous ones. And I sort of um, thought I'd really plumb the depths here. So <laughs> Dig deep. Uh, dig deep, yeah. So I thought we could do some um, vote of no confidence number crunching. <laughs> so so, um, so as, as you remember, earlier this month we had a, a vote of no confidence in the in the PM which although he he held on kind of went went worse than um i think a lot of a lot of people anticipated and for me one of the the, the more entertaining bits of this was was the um the spectacle of tory mp's and, and ministers taking to twitter to to express their their support for for the prime minister and um and this kind of bizarre situation where the speed at which they they kind of expressed their undying support was kind of seen as a, a sign of their their loyalty so, so i my, my first question is whether whether you could guess at what time george eustace the environment secretary what, what time in the morning did he express his support for the prime minister on on the morning of the no confidence vote anyone wants to have a have a try Five forty-five a.m. Oh, a, oh, he is a he is a farmer man, so yeah, he'd be up early. Um, no, I'll, I'll I'll go a bit later, but I think it would have been early. Let's let's say eight thirty. Wow, well, test test is very close. It's actually um, eight fifty-seven. So he that was when he oh, seemed to be voting hmm. for Boris. So the uh, the quickest off the mark was um, Steve Barclay, who you you kind of expect because he works in Boris Johnson's Boris Johnson's office. So he. He tweeted at half past six, followed by Sajid Javid at five past seven, and then Liz Truss at just gone half past eight. So, so they're the his hmm. loyal in a, in a circle. Hmm. There's a kind of second strand to this. There, there was a group of around 
20 MPs who were on the government's payroll who were notable because they didn't actually tweet their, their support. There's no kind of indication that these people, these ministers or private secretaries, voted against the, the Prime Minister, but their kind of failure to do so has has kind of apparently led to some of these MPs kind of that they, they fear that they could be sacked as a result. And there there have been reports in the in the Times that um the Prime Minister has actually been urged by some members of his cabinet to sack these ministers for disloyalty. Mm. So, so final final question is that we we have two of these MPs who are actually on the DEFRA payroll. Can you can you guess who they are? God, Joe Churchill. Yeah, Joe Churchill is one of them. Yeah, so I said first. so she's she's <laughs> apparently not said how she's voted, um, which is obviously um, seen as a massive sign of disloyalty and um, it's also interesting that when Theresa May faced a vote of no confidence Joe Churchill actually did go on Twitter to say that she supported the PM at that point um, so mm. draw your own conclusions that one um, and there's, mm. there's one other one other person in the department who's a, a parliamentary private secretary oh, I've forgotten their name are you going to guess Tess or shall I? no you, you go <laughs> so it's Selene <laughs> Saxby um, I think she's an MP mm. for oh, yes. Devon so she she also failed to profess her support on on twitter so there you go so some well, on their heads be it <laughs> disloyal bunch of defra yeah exactly so it'd be interesting to see what happens in the next reshuffle okay thank you for that jamie i think we have to move on now so it brings us to the end of our big green news section thank you both um, we'll be back with more next time and hopefully some updates on what we've been talking about today um, but you could go to the endsreport.com in the interim Next up is our deep dive section. In this episode, Jamie and I are looking at the dramatic issue of coastal erosion. Environment Agency Chair Sir James Bevan last week dusted off his klaxon and resumed warning that people living on fast eroding coastlines, such as like large swathes of east, the east of England, will have to up sticks and move because it's going to be too expensive to defend their homes from rising sea levels and from more ferocious storms that are going to accelerate as a result of climate change. The Environment Agency has been saying this for a long time. There are lots of coastal defences out there in place, but most locations don't meet the Treasury's cost-benefit analysis bar for investment. So there's no way a multi-million pound sea defence is going to be installed and maintained for the sake of a few homes, it says. But what's he been saying uh, recently, Jamie? What's the, what's the new warning? Is there any more information in it? I think you're right. that It's, it's kind of a similar warning that to those who's um, kind of made before, but I don't remember last time that he, he channelled Led Zeppelin when he was... <laughs> making, <laughs> yes. making that's new that's um, definitely new yeah definitely new so so i think um i think he's quite good at um kind of getting across his points in quite a forceful way with with, with some some strong sound bites but i'm not i'm not quite convinced by the the, <laughs> the metaphor this time but um come on you have you have to give it to us now um yeah i, I, won't, I won't sing any of this but but basically oh, please. He, uh, <laughs> He, um, he he opened his speech with a, a reference to the the Led Zeppelin song, when the levee breaks. So um, so it's not not yeah. not my favourite Led Zeppelin song, and 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 also just for the record, I've previously considered this a few times as a potential headline, and and thought better of it when writing about this stuff. So I think we've got the moral high ground. <laughs> um, so but um, but but basically, in his speech, he explained that the song's actually a. A cover story, and the the original was written in the in the twenties by a blues singer, Memphis Minnie. Um, so it's it's about the Great Mississippi Flood of nineteen twenty seven, and and the key line, and I'm I'm kind of in my head. I've got James Bevan singing this to the the kind of conference. Um, so oh, crying God. won't help you. Praying won't do you no good. 
when the levee breaks, Mama, you've got to move. So, and, and I think his, his, his point, you know, you know, it's kind of quite um, drawn out. But yeah, so he's, he's basically saying that the, the, point, the point of the speech is that in some places, as, as you were kind of saying sort of at the start of this segment, that, that um, in the, the right answer in economic, strategic and human terms will have to be to, to move communities away from danger rather than to try and protect them from sort of inevitable sea level rise. So, so he, he said in the speech, which brings me back to Led Zeppelin and Memphis Mini, we don't want to wait for the levee to break for communities to realise they've got to move. So and and I think this this is this is kind of the so you had his James Bevan speech, but also there's a big report this week published by the Tyndall Centre for Climate Change, um, a sort of an academic who works with the Tyndall Centre, and the kind of key message coming out from that as well is that that we need we need a, a serious national debate about this issue because that there are some uh, the, 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 about the scale of the threat and also what we do about this, and actually we're not we're not really we're not really talking about that at the moment. I mean, more than a, a debate, I think it's been, a, you know, it's been raised quite a lot over the years and without very much action. I know there are things called shoreline management plans that the councils have in place, but then there's lots of problems with those that we've, we've reported on the ENDS report before because they're not kind of statutory, they're not really underpinned by anything to, to enforce things, there aren't any criteria by which they have to compile them. Um, and it's a bit of a hybrid between environment agency and councils, and I think it's all a bit of a, a mess. But this has been known for so long, so for, for you know for there just to be James Bevan coming out and saying, well, we've got to talk about this, and the Tyndall Centre to say however many houses. I think they put a number on that number of houses that were at risk, did they? Yeah, they did. Well, yeah, I think the the one one of the interesting things about the Tyndall Centre report was was that actually the number of properties at risk. Of being abandoned by the twenty fifties is actually that they 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 estimate that it's many more than previously realised. So so um, they're saying kind of around two hundred thousand English properties, um, and they they also saying that thirty percent of of locations where it's planned to hold the line in the longer term, which is the kind of term for maintaining the coastline, it may be infeasible or kind of given funding or, or technically impossible to actually hold that line. So that that's 1,700 kilometres of the, the coast in, in England. So um, that's... And, and they're, they're kind of describing this as a transformational challenge, which it, which it is. It, it is, but we've known for so long and that number is going to keep increasing the, as long as we don't do anything about it, I guess. Um, so as well as looking for, you know, more conversations about this kind of stuff, is there any, are there any plans? I mean, did, did, did Bevan uh, refer to anything concrete you know is there anything coming up that we can look forward to so people can know how they're going to move out of their homes which i guess must be valueless if uh, they're going to drop over a cliff within the next five to ten years yeah well that, well yeah i mean the value of the properties at risk is is huge so so the um the the, the, the tyndall report said that the, the the kind of total value of those properties at risk is likely to be tens of billions of pounds and the the, the average price of a coastal home is nudging three hundred thousand pounds so so the, the, there's there's a huge amount of Assets at risk there, and also, also we know we know that um, it's not just homes. It, there's a whole load of stuff around the coast that's valuable. We've got kind of infrastructure, roads, rail, power stations. There's also horrible stuff like a load of coastal landfills that we we love to talk about. Um, so there's, there's all this all this stuff that needs to be thought about. I mean, in terms of the what what the environment agency is saying about about what happens next. I mean, in his um, Led Zeppelin speech, Bevan launched a um a document a new flood and coastal erosion risk management strategy roadmap to 2026 and that that sets out the actions that the EA and its partners will 
take in this area. So it, one of the things it, it, it talks about is producing a new national assessment of flood risk, um, an updated national coastal erosion risk map, and new long-term investment scenarios to better inform future investment decisions. And there's an objective in there that between now and 2030, risk management authorities will use nature-based solutions and improve the environment through their investments in flood and coastal resilience. So yeah, I mean, I, I guess there is stuff happening, but is it is it enough? And the kind of um, this kind of national conversation or debate isn't really something that is a lot on a lot of people's radars at the moment. Mm. I wonder if that's because some of these places that are at risk are you know, small villages and you know not large populations and you know, mm. yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's one of the things, isn't it? That like the um, some of the discussion I've seen around around the the stuff this week is that that there's there's no there's no question of big cities like London or big coasts of Cardiff places like that that they they will be protected they will have bigger seawalls than necessary because the value of or the, the cost of protecting them will be seen to be worth it even even though it's expensive we, we talked about Fairbourne I think on the eco chamber before so this kind of village in Wales that's going to be lost to the sea and and people have to move away or you've got sort of little coastal villages you've got communities on estuaries you've got kind of homes scattered on a on a coastal strip or kind of old old harbour villages when there might not be in those individual places there won't be a lot of people living there but when you actually look at how many people will live across those communities as a whole it's actually a lot of people and I think I think someone on Twitter made the point actually the number of people affected by this is actually kind of equivalent to the number of people that are affected by the the kind of current issues around building cladding so it's kind of really and that's a really kind of high profile political issue but this this just isn't at the moment. I think it might be something to do with the separating out the kind of co- the coastal erosion with the coastal flooding. Because if you look at, if you take coastal flooding as well, um, this is the Environment Agency in 2020 saying 1.8 million homes are at risk of coastal flooding. So I mean, if we start factoring that in, it becomes a, a much bigger issue. So maybe we should be separating the two out in in that way. And uh, you know, as for London, I think p- parts of London would be underwater right now if it wasn't for the for the Thames barrier. And they're going to have to keep think, thinking about revising, you know, this, that spec up all the time. I don't know where they are in those in those discussions, but I know that comes around quite regularly. So it's it's, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because it's good all about adaptation. I mean, mitigation has to happen, obviously. But in the meantime, climate change is happening anyway. So you know, we'd better stop talking about it. And start doing something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think it's um one of these one of these things we remember from. Sort of doing geography field trips like visiting somewhere on the south coast with coastal erosion it's always something that's always 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 happened and will always happen but but it's just um yeah it's gonna, gonna get worse and um yeah something yeah. it just seems to be like a, a kind of a, a policy area that doesn't doesn't have the attention that it, it really needs well that brings us to the end of our deep dive section now it's time for the chemical brothers simon pixton and gareth simpkins who have been looking at allergies and chemicals hidden away in everyday products over to you gareth and simon thanks rachel today we're covering a truly delightful subject even more than the customary sweetness and light we normally address here in the eco chamber i dread to think Well, I won't spoil the punchline too early, but last month, Will Hayward, a fellow journalist and Welsh affairs editor for Wales Online, wrote a story on how he had suffered from pretty bad skin problems for years. For seemingly no reason, my face would start burning and within hours would result in horrible red blotches appearing on my cheeks and nose, he wrote on Twitter. I've seen the pictures and he really isn't exaggerating. He tried moisturisers, 
sun cream, gave up dairy products and caffeine, which all had some impact for the better. However, some problems remained. Though the low-level redness was a bit diminished, the mega flare-ups were just as severe and happened just as often, he wrote. Despite doctors trying to figure out what was going on, it persisted until lockdown began two years ago. Then things improved within weeks. It was a massive improvement according to Hayward. Sounds like an environmental problem then. (sighs) Well, so when he returned to the office, it was back to square one in his own words. He eventually had a patch test, so that's a special investigation into whether he was allergic to anything, which looks pretty horrible to uh, to do. It involves basically sticking massive plasters to yourself and having them on for uh, a couple of days. You can't shower, etc. Um, and then eventually they're ripped off, and you can see if they've um, created a reaction. With the plaster containing like a variety of substances the, that the, you might the, be allergic to. Yeah, very various different allergens. Okay. Yeah. So uh, this test found that he was allergic to two commonly used preservatives and bactericides, methyl isothiazolinone, which we will call MIT, and 2-bromo-2-nitropropane-1,3-diol, otherwise known, thankfully, as Bronopol. They are commonly used in shampoos, deodorant, even face cream and medicines. So I imagine basically this involves him having to go through his entire bathroom cupboard and throw out anything with those ingredients it in, was, right? Yeah, it was rather broader than that because it included uh, washing up liquid and furniture polish. Uh, but the task was made harder due to the multiplicity of names given to MIT, such as Phenosan IT21, Cathog CG, Amistat 250, etc., etc., and so forth. I think that's got a nice ring to it, actually, Amistat 250. Mm, Each to their own. Uh, Nevertheless, our protagonist's skin uh, became much better once he was rid of all this stuff. But his problems returned again once he was back in the office, where it turned out he was being literally sprayed in the face with MIT by an automatic air freshener. Once this was replaced, his skin returned to normal. I mean, it's the first that I've ever really heard of such an extreme allergic reaction happening just just from environmental exposure to something like this but is it is it a freak occurrence is this quite common um well to quote another welshman it's not unusual uh the case (laughs) i know i couldn't help myself uh the case rather resonates with me actually Uh, i was hospitalized in 2004 with an acute reaction to medicine my skin pretty much fell off only three weeks after i started work as an environmental consultant listeners should be advised i've since grown back mostly (laughs) Anyway, uh, having done a bit of digging into these two substances, I found that the second one, Bronopol, was identified as the 15th most prevalent allergen identified through patch tests in North America over 2005 and 2006. So that's not quite the same thing as saying 3.4% of all Americans. No, it's a proportion of a proportion. Yeah. Yeah. So of people who do have allergies bad enough to get tested, it was pretty pretty commonly found to be um, provoking them. 3.4% 3.4% of people um, tested reacted uh, to it with allergic contact dermatitis. It was apparently invented in the 1960s by uh, Boots, actually, as a substitute for formaldehyde. So, uh, hashtag regrettable substitution again, really. Um, ironically, it's, um, it is quite commonly used in topical medications, though it's been largely phased out due to the prevalence of bad reactions like these. And what's the deal with MIT? I'm not going to try and pronounce its full name. (laughs) Wisely. Uh, Another study found that it was the third most common contact allergen in patch tests. It uh, may also be toxic to the lungs and the nervous system too. Uh, The European Society of Contact Dermatitis recommended that its use should be discontinued in uh, leave-on skin products uh, nine years ago, which uh, was followed up by EU ban in 2017. 
and uh, a maximum concentration of 0.015% applies in rinse-off products. So it seems that despite we have had some regulatory mm. intervention here, but it, it kind of goes to show that this sort of stuff gets into all kinds of products that you maybe yeah. wouldn't imagine. Like, um, was it furniture polish, as I mentioned? Exactly. It goes to show how little we know about what exactly we're being exposed to. I mean, it's one thing when you're in your own house, you've got a little bit of control, but as soon as you go into an office environment or you, you go outside, you know, you're potentially being exposed to all kinds of stuff. So if you do experience any symptoms like this, it could very well be a good idea to uh, get a patch test. So that brings us to the end of this episode of the Eco Chamber. Thank you to our editor, Jamie Carpenter, and to Tess Colley, Gareth Simkins, and Simon Pickstone. If you're interested in hearing more about any of the stories we've been discussing today, please go to endsreport.com, where you'll find more detail than you'll ever need. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, and we'll see you next time.